The recording of the following message was cut short due to a technical difficulty. Please enjoy the first 23 minutes. God, we want to come before you this morning acknowledging that too often we allow the voice of our culture or even the God that we've made up in our own heads to dictate to us your character and your worth and your significance. And so God, this morning as we look at this passage, I pray that you would remind us again that you are a God of pure, perfect justice and a God of holy, righteous love. God, as we think about those two characteristics that sometimes in our minds seem contradictory, would you remind us that we worship a God that is beyond our understanding, that you are infinite, that you are perfect, that you stand outside of time and space. And God, would you blow us away this morning as we are reminded of the reality that you are the God who crossed the universe to display your justice and love so clearly in the cross. So we ask God that you would minister to us now by your spirit, through your word, change us, transform us. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. As um, the US were planning during World War II to drop that catastrophic atomic bomb on Japan, there were a number of negotiations that were happening in the background between senior politicians and the military. In their very early days, the plan was actually to drop the bomb on Kyoto, uh, one of Japan's largest cities, a city of vast significance, a city that at the time had about a million people in it. And uh, there were some discussions about whether or not that should happen. And Kyoto kept getting put at the top of the list. It was, a, for, at least from the military's perspective, a perfect city for them to target in order to end the war and to send a very strong statement to the Soviet Union. And uh, there's some discussion historically about who was responsible for changing the government's decision, particularly President Truman's decision about where to drop that bomb. The first um, and historic suggestion has been that a man by the name of um, Langdon Warner, a Harvard professor of East Asian art, was the man who managed to convince them not to drop the bomb in Kyoto. But more recently, there's been uh, some evidence that has shown, in fact, it probably wasn't this man. It was probably the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, who kept pulling Kyoto off the top of the list. And the military was frustrated, so they kept putting it back on, and he would pull it off, and they would put it back on, and he would pull it off. And the only reason they took it off entirely was because he went to President Truman himself and pleaded the case on behalf of that city that they ought not to wipe out and annihilate the city of Kyoto. And his reason was that it held too much of a cultural significance for any reconciliation to take place after the war ended. And it wasn't until that point, till he had gone to the president and pleaded the case for this city, that the president said, we are not bombing Kyoto. And that, unfortunately, is when Nagasaki got put at the top of the list. And then the US dropped their bombs and absolutely devastated those two cities. In the passage that we're going to see this morning, we see Abraham or Abram standing before God, pleading 
the case on behalf of a city that God has just told him is about to see atomic-style destruction. It's a profoundly deep story. It's a story that leaves us with many questions. But what I want us to take away from this story this morning is that I want you to see this, that God actually invites us as His people to pray on behalf of our city that He would count the righteousness of the one enough to cover the many. That God invites us as His people to pray for our city that He would count the righteousness of the one enough to cover the many. That's my hope this morning. So let's get stuck into this passage. Genesis chapter 18, verse 22. God has appeared to Abram and and, uh, Sarai and told them that they're going to have a child. Pete told us about the two laughs last week. And then God reveals to Abram what he is about to do to the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then as the men leave to go and visit the cities, Abram is standing there in the presence of God. So verse 22, we pick up the story. So the two men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abram stood still before the Lord. Then Abram drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abram answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord I who am but dust and ashes suppose that five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose there are 30 found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O Lord, do not be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went away. And when he finished speaking to Abram, Abram returned to his place. This is such a profound, profound prayer. As I was preparing this week, I was, I was blown away. I mean, I read this prayer a couple of times and the nuances and the, the details of this prayer are so astonishing. And so I want to help you unpack them and see what's happening here because I want you to understand what Abram is doing here. The first thing is that God actually invites Abraham to petition him on behalf of the cities. I don't know if you noticed that there. He's standing there. There's this conversation between God and Abraham and these two angels. And then the angels leave to investigate the city and God stands there. The conversation is happening. God just stands there in silence. And it's almost as if he's inviting Abraham to 
have a conversation with him, to approach him and to plead. I don't know if you've, gents, if you've ever been in this situation where you're in the context of a discussion that's happening in a group of people and there just so happens to be that girl that you fancy and she's there and she knows that you're kind of keen and you know that she's kind of keen and all of a sudden everyone else in the conversation disappears and it's just you and her. And you're like, she didn't stand, she could have left, she didn't. Maybe, maybe this is my moment. Should I ask for her number? Should I take her out on a date? Should, right? And it's, Abram is in that moment. He's like, God is standing here. The others are gone. He's silent. What should I do? My nephew Lot is in the city. And God is actually inviting Abram to pray here and to petition him. And Abram stands before the Lord and it says that he draws near. He draws near. And I don't know about you as, as you heard me read that story. I don't know what image came to mind for you, but the image that came to mind for me was the image of um, someone maybe in, in Thailand who's at the markets and there's a nice bag that they want to buy and they, say, they begin to haggle and barter with the, the store vendor over the price of the bag. That's the kind, or, or maybe if you've seen Russell Peters, he talks about going to a, um, this, this Chinese bag seller and he talks about this bag that he wants to buy. How much is the bag? $35. And he, you know, anyone seen that Russell Peters? Oh, it's, so for me, I'm reading, I'm like, oh, that's, that's the scene. But that's not actually what's happening here. Abram doesn't come as, a, as a, um, someone who's looking to make a purchase and haggle with God. This is actually a scene of um, a court scene. This is a judicial scene. Abraham, as it were, he, he approaches the bench and he begins to plead a legal case before God. And so that's what's actually happening here. He, he comes and he approaches God and he begins to lean on the law, on theological truth about God's character. Did you see what he says there? In verse 23, it says this. This is Abram speaking. Will you indeed sweep away the, the, the righteous and the wicked? Suppose 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. And he begins this, if, it, if you like, a bit of an experimental theology, pushing the boundaries of God's justice and love. 45 30, God? 20? 10? I'm at the moment, um, I've got a little two and a half year old negotiation specialist. Her name is Piper. And she's very good at negotiating. She's a very cute negotiator. But I might say something to her like, Piper, no more chips, no more chips. And she'll say, one more chip, daddy, one more chip. Please, Daddy, one more chip. She like puts her head to the side, one more chip, Daddy. I'm like, oh, one more chip, all right. Abraham here is, he's like, God, God for the sake of 50, 45, 30, 20, he's, he's experimenting with the extremes of God's justice and love, negotiating with God like a lawyer would come before a, a judge and push the law to the very extreme of its boundary. His prayer here clings to the truth of God's character, that God is just, that God cannot and will not punish righteous people and wicked people together, that they would not see the same end. 
Now, Abram here is not saying, God, please don't destroy these wicked people because you're a God of love and would never do that. It's not, that's not Abram's prayer, right? Because he knows you cannot have a God of love without a God of justice. In fact, it's because God is a God of deep love that he does exercise his justice and anger at sin. God is a God of love. He loves this world that he's created. He loves the people that he has created and placed here. And so anything that violates human potential and human flourishing ought to make God angry. Otherwise, he's not a God of love. God is both loving and just. And so Abram clings to the fact that God always, always acts fairly, always acts in justice, that God will not destroy the righteous and the wicked alike. But here's the thing with this prayer. I don't know if you picked this up as I was reading it. Verse 24, he's not praying that God would rescue the righteous from the wicked. That's not his prayer. He's saying, because of the presence of the righteous in the city, would you spare the wicked? Did you notice that? Because of the, right, the presence of the righteous in this city, would you spare the entire city? That's his prayer. And that is profoundly significant because that is the first time in the whole Bible where anyone says, God, would you please not punish sin? Time and time again, we've seen God do that. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. Every single evidence of sin has been met with God's anger and punishment. And here Abram is saying, God, would you not do that for the very first time? This is a profound prayer. God, would you not punish sinners? That's a crazy request for a just and perfect God. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He, he says, in effect, what Abram's prayer is saying is this. God, could you value the righteousness of a few so much that it would cover the wickedness of many? Would you value the righteousness of a few so much that it would cover the wickedness of many? That is an audaciously bold prayer. From Abraham. If there are 50, God, would you do it? Yes. If there are 45, God, would you do it? Yes. And you're like, hang on a sec. Yes. That's the crazy part of this prayer. God says, yes. If there are 30, yes. If there are 20, yes. If there are 10, yes. What? How, God? How could a just God possibly say yes? And the answer to that question comes later on. But what I want you to notice here is this prayer from Abraham is profoundly bold and humble at the same time. Profoundly bold and humble at the same time. You know, Brian mentioned earlier that... Um, our vision this year has been a vision for a church that would move forward on its knees, that we would be a church that would be committed to pursuing God with everything in prayer, dependent on Him entirely. And so I thought in light of this, why not just hit the pause button and ask, how are you doing with that? How are you tracking personally in pursuing 
God, in, in coming humbly and boldly before Him, in asking that He would do a profound work in your life, in your GC, in this city, at your workplace, in your family? What, is, what are your prayers looking like at the moment? Are your prayers just full of requests for sickness and work and tiredness and stress? Or are you pleading with God to do something so radical in your life? Are you dependent on Him entirely? What do your prayers look like at the moment? Because here's the deal. God is inviting us as His people to plead with Him on behalf of our city that He would count the righteousness of one enough to cover the many. God is inviting us to do that. And this is a bold, audacious prayer. And so I want to encourage you this week, not just this week, all the time, to, to approach God like this, humbly, knowing that this is a powerful God, but in confidence because of the gospel, knowing that we can ask our Father anything, just like Beth shared in those stories in the interview this morning. So be encouraged to pray with great boldness and humility. But how does God answer Abram's prayer? How does God answer that audacious request that Abraham asks? Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 19. This is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a long one, so I'm going to try and read fast. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Now, that word isn't just so that we can have a cup of tea and, and chat and get to know them. That word means have sex with them. That's a euphemism in Hebrew. And we know that that's what it means because later on Lot will say, tragically, I have two virgin daughters who have not known any man. Sleep with them instead. Right, so these, What they're asking here is bring these men out so that we can gang rape them. That's the request. Lot said to them, uh, sorry, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Now, just, I mean, it's so hard just to get past that as a father of a daughter. To think, gosh, are you serious? These are your daughters. Now, I would love to spend time unpacking that, but let's, let me just say this. The text does not affirm that Lot's choice in that moment was right. He was an idiot at that point. And here is the thing. He spent so much time in Sodom that his moral compass is so far off that he thinks the only way to solving one form of wickedness is his solution, which is another form of wickedness. It's foolish. It's dumb. It's crazy. But they said, verse 9, Stand back 
This fellow came to sojourn and he has become a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break, down, break the door down. But the men, that is the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot back into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. The angels said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-laws, daughter-in-laws, or anyone else in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-laws who were about to marry his daughters, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting, to be joking. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside of the city. And as they brought them, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough for me to flee to. And it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be spared. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, and I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when, the lot, when lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of, hev out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities in all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities. And what grew on the ground, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abram went, went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the, the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. It's a sobering story. But um, it seems here that Lot's prayer, uh, sorry, Abram's prayer is not answered. Or at least not answered in the way that Abram had desired it to be answered. It seems that God has answered the intent of Abram's prayer, that he would act with justice, but not the content, that he would spare the city. And isn't it, isn't it just like God to do that sometimes? You pray and you think you've got it figured out and you pray to God and, and he seems to answer in a way that you had just not thought of at all. A anyone else had that happen to them? You pray and God answers and you're like, oh, right, okay. He hears the intent, but he doesn't answer the content of Abram's prayer. 